Good morning, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well today. Man, it is such a blessing to worship with you guys. Thank y'all so much uh, for just being who you are. It's awesome. It is awesome. Thank you to the band and Lizzie for that prayer. Uh, man, that's what I want. I want just to be God's mouthpiece. And, and so I, I joined her in that this morning. I just want this to fall exactly where God wants it to be in your hearts. Um, if you hadn't been with us in a while or you're new here today, we're in the middle of a study of the gospel of Luke. And our goal is to, to know Jesus and to make him known. We talked a lot last week about making him known. We're going to talk some more about that today. Um, we're taking our time walking through this book to understand and to experience the person of Jesus as Luke shares the results of his research and the testimonies that he's gathered about who this person is of Jesus. I want to remind us that Luke writes this book not from firsthand experience. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. He heard the words of Paul and, and wanted to know for certain for himself if this person, Jesus, really was the Son of God. And we know that from the beginning of the book that he's writing this specifically to a man named Theopolis, who we think probably funded this research that he's doing. But he wrote this book so that for, for himself and for those that did not grow up in the Jewish religion and culture could understand the significance of what Jesus had done for humanity. Luke wants everybody that reads this book to understand that this Jewish Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth, was their Savior too. I, I heard, um, I, was, I started a new book this week by KB, uh, who's a Christian rapper. Um, his name's Kevin Burgess. I didn't know that until I started reading the book. Um, but he talks about Nazareth in the beginning of the book and how it was their version of a ghetto in that day. And, and I love that imagery, that idea that, because we've, we've seen earlier in this book that people have said, Jesus, isn't he from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And KB is making the point that Jesus is a guy from a ghetto who came to change the world. And I, I love the idea of that. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter five, where these religious leaders are questioning Jesus and, and specifically about why his disciples aren't fasting. And this question opened the door for Jesus to share a few parables to help those religious leaders to see that the things of old had passed away, that all of their, their traditions, all of those things were not significant anymore. New things are happening because of the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, was with them. And God used this passage to make us think about the paradigms that exist in our own lives in regards to how we think about evangelism. I read a piece of research last or week before last that I didn't get to share last week, but I wanted to share it with you today because it, for me, it sheds a lot of light on the paradigm that a lot of us grew up in. Many of us grew up on the door-to-door the -door kind of ministry at, that comes to mind when we think about evangelism. And th but th the problem is, is that system doesn't work anymore. That's what this research points to. That model was developed in the 50s and 60s, and it worked well then. If you think about people and their willingness to receive the gospel, to, to accept Jesus as their Savior, if you look at it uh, from a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being they're completely unwilling to talk about it at all, and 10 being they're ready to pray the prayer of salvation. People during those days, during the 50s and 60s, fell as a majority about the 7. They just needed a little bump to get over the, the hill into salvation. And so that door-to-door -door ministry that was pioneered at that time worked great because it was the little nudge that people needed. However, today the research shows that that is not the case anymore. Today people need time to think. They need to process. They need to grapple with the idea of their being a God for one. And secondly, their need for God to be a part of their lives. 
The author of the research joked that if people today were still at that seven, that he could just send out a tweet and people would start giving their lives to Jesus. Because it's just that little nudge that they needed. But that's not the case for today. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. But the point is that we've got to stop seeing evangelism as a program or as an event, but as a process. I love Myra's testimony this morning because that's what she was talking about is evangelism. It's God using the abilities that he's given her to spend time with people who need help. There are women in central Louisiana who don't speak English, who need to see doctors, who don't speak Spanish. And Myra is being able to be that evangelistic bridge in their lives so that one, they can get the health care that they need. And secondly, that they can begin to hear the gospel. But they can see God's love. They can experience it through Myra's willingness to give up her time. As we read chapter 5 of Luke, we see the Pharisees struggling to understand who Jesus is and what he's about. Some have ill intentions, but some were genuinely curious But they need to process because their paradigm was changing. That's what's happening is we're feeling, we're seeing this tension that happens in the midst of a paradigm change. The same is happening in our culture in America. The younger generations are not simply accepting their parents' religion. And I want to say that that is a good thing. Rather than just saying they believe something because their parents did, these generations are looking at Scripture They're comparing what they see in the Word to what they see in the church, and they're letting God shape their beliefs as they do this. And when we think about evangelism, we've got to think about it as a process, one that takes time. It takes personal investment. We have to spend time with people that God has placed in our lives. We have to love them well, and we have to give them space to ask hard questions as they process. And part of that giving, hard, uh, giving space to ask those hard questions means that we've got to be willing to attempt to answer some of those hard questions, or at the very least, journey with them to find that answer. And church, I am convinced that this is going to make the church stronger than it has ever been because the people in the church will know what they believe and they will know why they believe it. God wants us to invest in people, not in programs. This is how we're going to make Jesus known. This study is going to help each of us to know Jesus better than we've ever known him, which is going to prepare us to help people find the answers to the hard questions that they want to ask. What you're also going to find is it's going to ask you some hard questions that you've never been able to consider before, to think about things in a way that you haven't thought about them before. And I want to affirm that that is a really, really good thing. Today we're going to continue in our study by looking at the last two of five controversies that Jesus is involved in at the beginning of his ministry. Luke shares these stories so the reader can see why the religious leaders dislike Jesus so much. As we move forward in the gospel, we're going to see this tension just boiling over eventually until it becomes the death of Jesus. And so Luke is setting the stage at the beginning of this, in the beginning part of this book in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 for us to understand this tension and why it exists. To recap, the first three, which start in the beginning of Luke chapter 5, is they're, they're frustrated, they're angry with Jesus because he claims to have the authority to forgive sins. Secondly, he's relating with sinners. And then thirdly, what we talked about last week is that Jesus wasn't living as piously as the religious leaders thought that he should. 
And then today we're going to look at these last two that are found in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. We're going to see that he claims, Jesus claims to have authority over the Sabbath, and then we're going to see him heal on the Sabbath. I want to invite uh, Joshua, he's going to come up this morning and read Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 for us. One Sabbath day, Jesus was walking through the grain fields. His disciples began to break off some heads of grain. They rubbed them in their hands and ate them. Some of the Pharisees said, It is against the law to do this on the Sabbath day. Why are you doing it? Jesus answered them, Haven't you ever read what David did? He and his men were hungry. He entered the house of God and took the holy bread. He ate the bread that only priests were allowed to eat. David also gave some to his men. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day. On another Sabbath day, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching a man whose right hand was weak and twisted was there. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were trying to find fault with Jesus, so they watched him closely. They wanted to see if, the, if he would heal on the Sabbath day, but Jesus knew that what they were thinking. He spoke to the man who had the weak and twisted hand. Get up and stand in front of everyone, he said. So the man got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, What does the laws say we should do on the Sabbath day? We should do good, or should, or should we do evil? Should we save life, or should we destroy it? He looked around at them, at all of them, and then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did and his hand had been made as good as new. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were very angry and began to talk to one another about what they might do to Jesus. Thank you, Joshua. So the Pharisees are upset with Jesus. They are upset because they don't think he's following the law the way that they should. I want, I want us to flip back to Luke chapter 4. I want to remind us of something. I want us to remember what Jesus said that he was there to do you remember when Jesus was in Nazareth reading in the synagogue and he read from the scroll of Isaiah this is in Luke chapter 4 verse 18 uh, and we'll read 19 and then 21 he said this is Jesus gets up in the synagogue and he reads this passage from the scroll of Isaiah he said the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to him, and then he says, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus did not come to appease the religious leaders. He came to reveal to them that they're missing the point. God didn't give the law for them to try and obey it perfectly. He gave them the law so that they would see their need for God's mercy and for his grace. But they didn't see it in that way. They saw the law as this, if we are perfect, we can be close to God. And God's, Jesus is revealing to them, no, that's not the point. Jesus is showing them through his words and his actions that he is the fulfillment of the law. In the first five verses of Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells them plainly that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
If you flip back to Exodus chapter 20, I want us to, we're going to look at a few scriptures today because I want us to see this. I want us to feel it. Exodus chapter 20, that's the chapter in which we get the big 10, right? The 10 laws. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. The Pharisees' issue, here's what's interesting, with the disciples, is not that they're picking grain. That's not the issue. This was permitted under the law. If you go back to Deuteronomy and look at this, and, and we got it up on the screen. I want you to see how ridiculous this is. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, it says, When you enter your neighbor's uh, standing grain, you may pluck the heads of grain with your hand, but do not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. It was an established law. That if you're walking along the road and there's a field of standing grain, you are more than welcome to go and pluck whatever you want with your hands so that you can eat. Passing by the fields, doing this was acceptable. This is precisely what the disciples are doing. They're traveling, they see some grain, they're hungry, they pick some grain, and they eat it. They're not breaking the law. What they're doing is they're going against the traditions and the rules that the religious leaders put in place to try and keep people from breaking the law. That's what they're mad about. Think about it like this. I've used this example many times before, but I'm going to use it again because it works so well. I grew up, many of you grew up in faith traditions that, that communicated that it was sinful to dance, right? Does the Bible say that it's sinful to dance? It does not. In fact, it describes David dancing before the Lord. But what was the reason behind the rule? The reason behind the rule was they were trying to keep people from being immoral. And dancing might lead someone to be immoral. Therefore, dancing is against the rules. I thought it was hilarious. We were at LCU this weekend. They had a DJ and were encouraging people to dance. I was like, what is going on here? What is happening? This is not the LC that I went to. Okay? These rules were developed and treated by the Pharisees with the same weight that the law of God gave. This law was later compiled in a work known as the Mishnah. I've referenced that before. And in Shabbath 7.2 of the Mishnah, threshing grain is forbidden on the Sabbath. Okay? So the Mishnah is not God's law. This is a set of rules that the Pharisees put together to keep people from breaking the law. So what the Pharisees are upset with is not that the disciples are breaking the law. The the, the Pharisees are upset because they're breaking their rules. They're not happy about that. They're not happy because the disciples, after they picked the grain, they rubbed it in their hands to remove the husk. That's what they're mad about. Do you feel how ridiculous that is? The religious leaders considered this work because they were using their hands as tools to remove the husk. So look at the response from Jesus. And I want us to pay special attention to this because it it has significance for us today. Jesus stands in the disciples' defense. Luke doesn't tell us that Jesus is picking grain. Luke tells us that the disciples are picking grain 
rubbing it in their hands and then eating the wheat berry. Jesus steps up on their behalf at the question. Church, the disciples were walking. They were doing life with Jesus. They were following him. And if they were doing something wrong, Jesus would have told them, but he didn't. They weren't doing anything wrong. But from the outsider's standards, from the Pharisee's standards, they were doing something wrong. Church, as you're walking with Jesus, as you are living in an abiding relationship, there are going to be onlookers who are going to try and convince you that you are doing something wrong. I see some head nods in here. I know some of you have experienced that before. But I want us to hear this. If Jesus isn't correcting you, then no one else should be either. Look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. He says, Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? He even gave some of those who were with him. Jesus is quoting a portion of a story found in, in 1 Samuel 21, 6. David, I'm going to set the stage for you. David and his men are on the run and they are famished. And they go by the temple and they ask the priest for something to eat. And the priest says, there is nothing here except the bread of the presence, which by God's law is only allowed to be eaten by the priests that have been consecrated that are in a state of cleanliness, according to the Old Testament law. Okay, look at this with me in verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 6. It says, so the priest gave him the consecrated bread. For there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. And when the bread was removed, it had been replaced with warm bread. Notice who gave them the bread at the beginning of that? The priest. The priest gave them the bread. The religious leader gave them the bread. Jesus is making the point that these rules that the religious leaders made up are not the law. He goes on to say in verse 5 that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Mark records Jesus saying it. This way in his account in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. It says, then he told him, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is making a massive claim to these religious leaders. He's saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath. Therefore, he gets to decide what is permissible and what is not. Luke doesn't record the response to that statement, but rather he goes right into the next story. But I think the response is the same as we're about to see. Let's look at it again, verses 6 through 11. It said, On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose hand was shriveled. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said to them, is, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? And then after looking around at all of them, he told him, stretch out your hand. And he did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Once again, we see Jesus doing his thing. It's a Sabbath. He goes to the temple. He goes to the synagogue, local synagogue, and he begins to teach. 
as usual, the religious leaders were there listening. And they're watching for anything that they could hold against him. Jesus knows that they're watching him. And therefore, he sets the stage to continue to challenge their understanding. I think it's worth noting that Jesus isn't just bucking the religious leaders because he didn't like them. And I want us to understand that. It's easy when I talk this way, when we talk about religious leaders, to put them in a very negative light and lump them all together. I want to point you back to verse 1 at the beginning of chapter 6 where it says some of the Pharisees. And the commentators all point that out. Not all of these guys are bad, but here are some watching him like a hawk, and Jesus knows it, to try to expand their understanding, because that's his goal. He wants people to understand who he is and what's important to God. So to try to expand that understanding, he calls on the man with the shriveled hand, and he asks him, asks him to come to the front, and he asks the religious leaders, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do, or to do evil, to save a life or destroy it? And this question is not as simple as it may seem. Even though a person's not supposed to work on the Sabbath, which we read out of Exodus chapter 20, we know that's against the rules, against God's law, excuse me. There were emergency provisions. For example, if someone fell in a well and is drowning, it is okay to do work to get the person out of the well. That makes sense, right? Okay. So Jesus is asking the Pharisees at this moment if they think it's okay for him to heal this man. And based on previous interactions and other historical accounts, the response that would have been given if they had answered was that the man could wait another day because it wasn't a life and death situation. But for Jesus, this man had lived with this affliction long enough that he felt it to be evil, not good, to make him wait one more day. Jesus is making a radical statement with this question and with his his actions. He shows that his and God's primary concern is not with keeping the law. God's primary concern and Jesus' primary concern are people. That's huge. The Pharisees were focused on keeping the law perfectly no matter the cost. And Jesus' primary concern was taking care of people no matter the cost. Jesus has already told the Pharisees why he had come. He came to preach the good news. He came to release the captives, to recover the sight of blind, to free the oppressed. And in keeping with that mission, Jesus tells the man to stretch out his hand, and in doing so, the man's hand is restored. And the point I want to make is that Jesus works in the lives of those that obey in faith. We talked about last week how our primary goal as followers of Jesus is to proclaim the gospel. Amen? Amen. You're going to have to help me out here. <laughs> Look, one day I'm hoping that we're going to have some people of color in here. And if you don't say amen at all, it's going to be awkward. Okay? <laughs> our goal is to proclaim the gospel. Amen. Thank, oh, man, that was good. Okay, let's try it one more time. Our goal is to proclaim the gospel. Thank you. All right. Proclaiming the gospel is what we're called to do. And it's, it's not something that we do because we have to. It's something that we do in response to the goodness that God has done in our lives, the things that we've experienced. I had a fellow pastor that came into my office 
uh, uh, what day was this? Like Tuesday or Thursday morning. He like just kind of burst. He was like, hey, you got just a minute. I got to tell you a story. I was like, yeah, of course, man. Y'all know this guy, Jason Huffman. Many of y'all know him from, from days of old, okay? Local pastor, Pineville Christian. Great, great dude. Love him to death. He comes in. He says, well, you're not going to believe this. And I was like, well, let's just hear the story first and we'll go from there. All right. So he says, our tithing's been down the last couple of weeks. And he said, so I just sent out like a, a letter like a pastor would do and just say, hey, our giving's down. You know, I know it's the summertime, beginning of school. Just want to kind of keep everybody aware. This is where the finance committee says our finances are, blah, blah, blah. Does the thing, okay? And he said, a couple of days later, I get a phone call from a guy that's a member of his church, but only comes every six, seven weeks, something like that. And he says, hey, I got something for you here at my office. I, need a, I got an envelope I need you to pick up. So Jason goes to the guy's office and he picks up an envelope that's full of cash. And he's like, oh, man, this, I mean, he doesn't even know how much is in it. But he's like, this is, I mean, he, but, you know, like if everybody has ever had, you ever go to the bank and do a withdrawal of a lot of money to buy something and you got that envelope in your hand, you just feel the thickness of it. It's one of those moments, okay? And he knows there's a lot of money in here, but he doesn't know how much. And he's like, oh, do you want it like a receipt? And the guy's like, no, no, no I don't want anybody to know who gave this money, but I feel like God told me to give it to you. Jason's like, okay. So he leaves the guy's office. And he gets a phone call that one of the air conditioners at the church has died. Now, if you don't know this, Jason owns a company called Igloo Air. They don't, I, don't think, I don't know if they still do air conditioners. They used to. He knows all about them. Gets a call, hey, one of the air conditioners at the church is dead. He goes and he looks at what's wrong with it, compressor and a couple other things. And he said, you're not going to believe this. I said, the amount of money in the envelope was exactly what you needed to buy the parts. He was like, yes, how did you know that? I was like, because that's what God does. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Church, this is, this is not somebody from our body that's sharing their experience of what God's doing so that other people can know God's goodness. We are not alone in that. And I want us to see that. This is not some strategy that Glenn or I or somebody else cooked up and said, this is going to be our way of evangelizing to people. This is what happens in people's lives when they experience the goodness of God. They burst into other people's offices like, I need a few minutes to tell you what my God just did. That's what evangelism looks like. In the last few weeks, Jesus has been flipping the religious, the religious leaders' ideas of what it means to belong to God. He's messing up their minds. In every case, Jesus is showing the religious leaders that he is the son of God. One of the commentators I read this week said it this way. He said, Jesus was in trouble because he showed that he had the authority to give, forgive sins. Jesus was in trouble because he was relating to sinners. Jesus was in trouble because he didn't live piously as the religious leaders thought he should. Jesus was in trouble because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the point that God wants us to understand today is that we should expect similar responses to what Jesus experienced, both good and bad. If we abide in Jesus, many will experience the love and the joy that comes with knowing Jesus but others are going to see our works and hate us for it. And the reality is, is we don't get to decide which way they fall. There's no doubt in my mind at all from our story today that this man and the others that Jesus healed walked away from there not loving Jesus. How could they not love him? It says that it was his right hand. If you look at statistics, most people are right-handed. That was a significant detail that Luke is giving us. Most likely, I don't know this for sure, but most likely this was this man's primary hand. 
He went from not being able to work and provide for his family in an effective way to being able to work and provide for himself or his family in an effective way because Jesus saw him and he loved him enough to go against the religious leaders and heal him on the Sabbath because this man was more important to Jesus than the law. However, there were many who responded as the religious leaders did. It says in verse 11, they, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the capstone on this section. Next week, we're going to get into Jesus calling the rest of the disciples. But Luke is ending this section with this statement because he's making a very bold statement. That Jesus' attention to people and his willingness to take care of them no matter what the cost to himself personally, filled these men with rage. Church, people are going to love you or they're going to hate you. As a follower of Jesus, we know that if we are abiding in Jesus, we're doing the right thing and we don't have to question that. The disciples were right, were in the right when they picked the grain to eat. And Jesus stood in their defense. And Jesus will do the same for you and I as we walk with him. As we're doing the things that he's called us to do, he will stand in our defense. If we're doing what God has called us to do, people's reactions, and I want you to hear me say this very clearly, I'm going to say it again. When we are doing what God has called us to do, people's reactions are not our responsibility. They are not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to hear from God and to do what he says in a loving way. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. If we are doing those two things, Jesus says, the rest of the law is taken care of. Our job as followers of Jesus is not to please the world, but to be like Jesus. We gather around Jesus. We learn from him. We come to know him and we make him known. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to be a part of the family of God. We love God and we love others. And in loving others, we proclaim the gospel. Jesus lived a sinless life. And then he gave himself to receive the punishment that we deserved. And he gave himself as a sacrifice that we needed. He was dead for three days and he rose from the dead. He commissioned his disciples and then he ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And through God the Father and the Holy Spirit, they guide us as we abide in him. He guides us into the world where he has planted us so that the people in our lives, whether they're our friends or our co-workers or our families, we get the opportunity to share the truth that Jesus loves them. Church, there are people in those groups, our coworkers, our friends, our families who are still convinced that God's a, a view of them is based on their behavior and it's not the gospel. The gospel is, is that we are all born in sin and Jesus loves us anyway and he did everything that was needed in order to make us right with God. His story is our story. It's a story of redemption. That's what we're to proclaim that the people in our lives that are struggling because they feel like they're not good enough for us to be able to say to them, you are. God loves you just like you are. You don't have to be anything. That's what means so much to us. 
When we think about God's grace, when we think about all that He's done for us, it gives us so much joy. It brings us to tears because we know that we are good enough, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us. That's what, I didn't get an amen out of that. Come on, church. That's what it means. I'm not saying you got to stand in front of your friends and yell at them like I'm doing right now. I don't do that real often. But what it does mean is you can sit down and you can have a cup of coffee with somebody that doesn't know Jesus and love them right where they are. And you keep doing that until they get to the point where they look at you and they say, there's something different in your life. I don't know what it is, but I want that. And they may not phrase it that way. They may say, Will, I've been spending a lot of time with you, and who is this Jesus guy? Because I've been to a lot of churches in my life, and I've never experienced what you're talking about. I've had people say that to me. And what they're seeing is not that Will's a good person. What they're seeing is that God is working in my life because I just want to follow him. And sometimes there's bumps in the road and I screw it up and I do the wrong things. But there's grace there for that too. And they get to see that. Church, that's what it means to proclaim the gospel. It's living in grace, abiding in Jesus, and inviting people to join you in that. We're not asking you, I'm not asking you, Jesus is not asking you to go knock on some random person's door. He might, and if he does, go do that. I'm not saying he won't. I'm saying what he is telling you to do is to live like him. To look at the people in your life, the people that don't know Jesus, the people that are hurting, the people that are suffering, and just go help. Be the shoulder that they need or bring a hammer if that's what it requires. Love God and love the people he's put in your life. In our text today, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. and He's showing the Pharisees what's important. It's not behavior, it's not the rules, it's people. And as a body of Christ, our job in proclaiming the gospel is to show others that people are what's important. Let's pray. Father, I want to lift up right now the people that you are calling each of us to. The people in our lives that don't know you, that need to know you, that desire to know you. Father, I pray for their hearts. I pray for our hearts. I pray that you would give us a desire, that you would put it in us, that it wouldn't be something that feels manufactured or something that feels fake. Father, I ask that you would make it our utmost desire to share the beauty of who you are with the people around us. Father, I pray that you would give us more and more opportunities to share the gospel so that as we are living in your presence, as we are abiding in you, that sharing the gospel becomes second nature. It becomes a part of who we are. It becomes a part of the language that we use in our everyday lives. And Father, I pray for sensitivity to your Holy Spirit, that as we are meeting with people, whether it's having lunch or a cup of coffee or having our kids play together, Lord, I ask that your spirit would be present in our midst and that you would give us a sensitivity to know what to do, when to do it, what to say, and when to say it. Father, we're not relying on our own abilities. Father, we want to rely 100% on you. This is not about us. It's about proclaiming the gospel. It's about following you. Jesus, I ask this thing for, for my sake, for the sake of the people in my lives that don't know you, and for the sake of my, my church body, my brothers and sisters, and the people in their lives that don't know you. Jesus, I ask this not in my power, not in my authority, but in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.